Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and try and learn a little bit more about their background. Speaking to us today is Dr. Elizabeth J. Erling, and thank you very much indeed for sparing your time today. Thanks for having me. The paper we're going to be speaking about is Understanding Low Outcomes in English Language Education in Austrian Middle Schools the role of teachers' beliefs and practices. Um, But our background goes a little bit deeper than that. You were my uh, exterior examiner for my PhD seven years ago, and we'll probably get into a little bit more of that uh, later on. But I would like to ask you about the uh, motivation for the paper that we're speaking about today. What's, What's your background with middle schools and their use of English and, and English language teaching in Austria? Well, Chris, as you know, I, I uh, was always interested in uh, global perspectives of English, uh, as you are, and I also taught English in, in Asia in the 90s. And, <clears throat> and when I was working in the UK, I was working in English, uh, in English language teaching in developing country contexts. And so I became highly aware of issues around equity of access to language learning and um, whether that's learning the the language of instruction or learning English as a foreign language or lingua franca or however you want to call it. And so five years ago, I, I moved from the UK to Austria. So I'm now based in Austria. And um, I moved here for personal reasons and I was getting involved in the education system here and transferring my my research over. I was just um, drawn to issues around equity and access. That was just, you know, you know, because of the focus of my previous work. And so getting to know the education system here, finding out about it, both both for personal reasons, because I have two young children in the school system, but also Mm -hmm. for research uh, reasons. I I was looking at the the different uh, types of school here, PISA results, national assessments, things like that, that as a researcher I was looking at. And I just noticed a very striking disparity in English language learning outcomes, um, in that these students who go to middle schools Middle school is a track of schooling in Austria, which is is for the less academically inclined students, and they're they're just they're they have much lower outcomes in English than students who go into the academic track of learning. And so I started. I mean, I was really shocked to read this, and all of the all of the reports and educational statistics show very blatantly, obviously, that kids who go to the schooling track do well in all subjects, do less well in all subjects across the curriculum. And I was thinking, gosh, why are people not screaming and yelling about this? Why is there not more research about this? And so it seemed just like a very obvious direction in which to take my research. So that's what I've been working on. Well, we've we've already had someone who came on to the podcast speak about this. Uh, Luisa Zellhofer spoke about the fact that she was put into a track that she wasn't very uh, happy with and had to come back around and, and redo most of her high schooling. 
as, as it's as it's framed uh, here, the the new Mittelschule uh, in Austria. Is it similar between Germany and Austria? Is this is this how it yeah. is that it's, it's, it's similar in quite early on? Yeah. Yes. So after four years of comprehensive primary schools, mm -hmm. kids are tracked. So Austria, Germany, I believe Belgium. I'm not sure. There's only a few remaining systems in the world today that have early tracking. Hmm. Evidence sh shows that it, it, it has unfair advantage, uh, unfair results. That it's far, it's too early to track, and we know that. But it's um, politics and tradition that kind of perpetuates the the early tracking system. Hmm. Uh, there have been several uh, uh, attempts to change it in Austria. The last one is in 2008, but it was unsuccessful so the system remains and there's no problem with education that is more vocational than mm. than academic and in fact you know there's real great access to vocational jobs in Austria um, that are well paid um, the, the issue really is around people not having equal access to opportunities and so when you look at the statistics you see that kids from migration backgrounds and who have German as an, a, an additional language, so who speak other languages at home, and kids with from families with lower socioeconomic status are more likely to be tracked into the vocational track. Well, Whereas those whose parents have uh, ac more higher academic um hmm. higher academic status or have achieved their their kids are more likely to go um into the academic tracks and they say that austria is one of the countries where education is inherited more than in others well let's take a look at those uh, those two points how do you think that your findings do, they, do you think that they have some uh, outcomes in in other places, for example, like Germany, where these the, the same systems are used? I think uh, they they can be relevant in other contexts of early tracking, but not only that, because I think across Europe and probably internationally, we have students from migration backgrounds that are less likely to do as well at school than students whose families are in indigenous to the country. And that's kind of a global phenomenon. And, it, and, it, and it's one of more recent interest with, with the increase in migration globally. Um, and that in, migration was already on the increase. And then there was the Syrian refugee crisis in, 2000, in 2015. There was a big, a large influx of, of children to Europe with um, different home languages. Um, and so there were a lot of challenges around integrating those kids into the school system. So, but I think these, these issues are common to a lot of school systems. What I think is particularly interesting, though, is the, is the aspect around English language teaching. Because, of course, that's, mm -hmm. that's where my real expertise lies. And when you look at the research around multilingualism, you would think that multilingual children would be an at an advantage in school systems when learning additional languages at school. The research that we have, which is primarily about elite multilingualism, it suggests that these children should be a, at an advantage in school for learning English. 
but we don't see the, that advantage showing up in, in the data. And, and so that was what was real, uh, really of interest to me. And, you know, in, in the English language classroom where we're teaching intercultural communication, we're, te- we're, we're thinking about English as a lingua franca, where it seems like a place in which uh, multilingual children should be thriving and should have particular, they should have advantages that, that, that we could make better use of. And yep. this would strengthen their, their academic self-concepts, their, their being positive about school, their feelings of inclusion, their feelings of success, and that this would then perhaps transfer to their whole school experience. So, um, so that's really what I'm, I'm very interested in. Okay, well, let, well, let's talk about that then. What is it that they are uh, lacking? What what is it that the schools are not doing to key into their 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 general multilingual abilities? What is it that, that the schools are not doing? Yeah. That, the, that the teachers are not doing to really key into uh, these advantages that we might believe that they have. First of all, they might be. With the, what my own research suggests and others as well is that they're using German as the primary language for teaching and what, particularly with students who are struggling so that ling- linguistic concepts get ex- in, explained in German and for kids who who might also be struggling to learn German this isn't this doesn't necessarily help them and there's there's not the attempt that you would see, for example, in a dual language teaching context or in a CLEO context to really scaffold that talking about language. So that's one thing, that the language of instruction and the lack of scaffolding. The second one is, is related to that in that uh, I think that they're not in doing explicit things around enhancing meta-linguistic competences. So this comparing of languages, of looking at different structures, of raising awareness to grammar, syntax, vocabulary, etymology, these sort of things. And this could be useful, you know, language awareness could be useful for everything, for sustaining home languages, for supporting German language learning, and for improving an interest in further language learning. So, so that's another big thing. And, and the third one, uh, which my, the, the article um, where you've read uh, in preparation for today is, is the third is really around beliefs about multilingualism and multilingual practice. And we see that despite multilingualism being valued in policy and pushed at a European level that um, in in a number of contexts and including those that I'm researching, multilingualism may be viewed positively, but multilingual practice is, is not necessarily and that teachers may hold deficit beliefs about multilingual students that then influences their practice and influences students' learning outcomes. So yeah, the final thing would be around transforming these beliefs. 
to give a little uh, little background into uh, the contents of the paper, uh, you speak about the fact that some teachers are not perhaps confident or, or not happy with using multiple languages in the classroom. So in the Austrian yeah. context, that would be uh, using German to explain contents of the English language classroom and also multilanguaging perhaps with students from different ethnic backgrounds. What ethnic backgrounds you are you speaking about? Like how many different languages perhaps are going on in the classroom? It really depends where in Austria the school is. I mean, um, mm -hmm. in urban areas um, like Vienna, Graz, Linz, there are large numbers of, of students from migration backgrounds between 20, 20 and 50% perhaps. And historically, Turkey was one of the main migration mm -hmm. countries mm -hmm. to uh, Austria. And then uh, there was, uh, at, uh, during the Yugoslavian war, there was a large influx. So speakers of Bar group, um, Chechnyan. Yeah. There was, a, a, following that, a wave of refugees from Chechnya. And now most recently, uh, Arabic speakers. Right. But um, yeah, but schools are amazingly diverse. And I had a student who, who works in a school which is over 90% students with migration backgrounds in, in the school. Mm. So that's not Portuguese, Spanish, English, um, French, uh, various African languages, uh, and Pashto, um, Vietnamese. I mean, Vienna is an, an incredibly international uh, city. And right. so you can really find kids of, of all language backgrounds. In this environment, is there a particular recommendation that you would have for training of new teachers? Or is there a, a different way that you would uh, think about streaming students, perhaps with different language backgrounds? I think that uh, basically, I think our teacher education programs in all in all the the areas, so mm -hmm. in all the subjects, um, there needs to be an, a more intense covering of language supported teaching. Mm -hmm. So for all all of the subjects, that teachers should have a heightened awareness of language and the role of language in their subjects. The the, the teaching of key concepts. So all of the stuff that we use really in, in CLEAL and language supportive pedagogy. And that is happening in Austria. So um, the teacher education system was reformed a few years ago and there is more input now around language supportive pedagogies and multilingualism. So, and that's also for English language teaching. I mean, for, for English language teaching, I think we need more focus on really how to um, how to scaffold the use of English in the classroom. So when I talk to teachers about inviting students to use their entire multilingual repertoire mm -hmm. to um, to think um, and, and develop, they they get really nervous about that. Well, first of all, because they don't want to lose control of their class, and if if this, the students are speaking all kinds yeah. of languages, there, they, there's a sense of nervousness that, sure, sure. especially around with students speaking languages that they don't understand. Yeah. But the other thing is that we've all been trained as English language teachers to use the target language as much as possible and use it as a 
as a medium of communication in the classroom. And of course, I, I, I recognize the importance of that and that we, we need to use language meaningfully in order to learn it. So for example, in an activity, you might have somebody read something, you know, or go out and find something about whatever in whatever they, whatever language they want to read in or do their research in. They could talk about it with their peers in whatever language, whatever language that they, that's best for them to talk about it. And what I always tell my students is primary for me is thinking and reflecting. And that's primary to me to, to English learning. So, so we want them talking about something and then we wanna build in a step where they start doing that in English. And we give them though, the tools that they need to be able to talk about these things in English. So what kind of phrases might you need? What kind of questions can you ask? And how can you have these discussions to talk about meaningful, engaging content? Based on what we're speaking about, and also uh, based on what you included in the paper, we have a, a former interviewee, uh, Jean-Marc Duvalet, who spoke about the idea of an LX uh, being yeah. a, a shared non-native language. How helpful is it that there is this uh, shared non-native foreign language that the students are learning? I don't, I don't know. I mean, you, you may uh, know that in some of my work, I've been critical of the dominance of English language teaching. Um, and sometimes I am not fully convinced that English is what every needs to reach their goals in life. Mm -hmm. But obviously, if they they feel that it is, or um, then then certainly I wouldn't want to close down any opportunities to learn English. Mm -hmm. But the the fact of the matter is that regardless of the language. Language learning is a useful activity. I mean, it's useful on, on many, many levels, cognitively, interculturally. I mean, obviously, if you le learn the language and, and can use it for certain purposes, then beyond school, just the simple fact of learning a language, even if you wind up not using it much, much again in your life, it can be a very positive experience. I mean, I believe that language learning is um, a good thing and an opportunity that everyone should have. I think if we connect if language to the real world and people feel that there's a usefulness in that language or that they that language helps them achieve goals that they want to meet in their lives, then they will be motivated to learn it and that they would then be more successful in doing so at school. Can I ask you about your choice of bringing up intersectionality and the intersectionality mm. lens as a way of looking at and analyzing the data that you have from this study? Could you uh, define intersectionality in this context? I hope that intersectionality makes sense in this context because the concept it originally used in the context of 
Black feminism in the United States. So the feminism that sort of evolved was a particular white feminism that didn't necessarily cover the experiences of, of Black women. And so the intersectionality lens allowed us to better see the double disadvantage that uh, people who were facing um, or the multiple disadvantage that some that some people might be facing when when they were uh, they belong to a number of categories that were on their own uh, disadvantaged. And so so I, I'm using it in this European context because mm -hmm. the research so far has looked at uh, multilingualism. Mm -hmm. and the role of multilingualism mm. in academic success. And there's been research more in, in the field of sociology around socioeconomic class. And if, if I can, if I can uh, uh, just give a, a quote from your paper, possibly to, yeah. to help frame it. Intersectionality theory can help us understand the ways in which members of a particular group experience education differently depending on factors such as ethnicity, gender, linguistic background, and or socioeconomic class. And I think that right. that really feeds into what you're speaking about people from different uh, linguistic backgrounds, and the students who are coming, uh, who may be first generation Austrian immigrants. How do you think that maybe the lessons that are being learned from this generation of students uh, can improve the learning outcomes of the next generation or not even the next generation, but like the next five or 10 years of students in Austrian schools? Well, I think, you know, the disparities in education are becoming all too clear uh, yeah. this yeah. year, last year. And these disadvantages that people face in the school system that run along the lines of socioeconomic class and language background, those are the students who are who are falling behind the most in the home-based learning situation. And so the current situation is just it's just allowing us to amplify the inequalities in the education system. And and if we don't sort them out we are just going to leave a generation, a large number of people behind. And, and these are people who we need for the success of our, of our communities and our societies uh, going forward. So we just really need to sort this out and equalize opportunities in education. Maybe this is this a is this a a failing of communication between the schools and families uh, between the teachers and the students. I, I, I know no, that. No, I really in, in think this... it's a po a, a a policy failure more than anything. I mean, mm -hmm. um, that the 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 schools and the teacher education system have have not changed very much in two hundred years. They were designed to promote a monolingual nationalist uh, education. And uh, they haven't changed to reflect the diversity of, of contemporary society. Okay, well, well let's, let's talk about that then. What should the school be doing better when it comes to not speaking about in terms of nationalism but speaking in terms of inclusivism 
you know that there, there, there are large numbers of people who are you know traveling throughout the continent and are being part of a new community right um, so migration yeah the, the how could we do better to integrate without separating them linguistically that, that's, that's well first of, of all i think it's around I, the messages that schools send of a, a message of of welcome and a shift from valuing multilingualism to mm -hmm. uh from seeing multilingualism and and diversity as a deficit to to valuing it and already mm -hmm. that shift so policy discourses around welcoming multilingualism uh just a sign at a school or um the 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 way schools represent themselves they can already that can make a big difference in terms of children feeling welcome at school and part of communities uh having multilingualism be a topic um teachers recognizing the di the diversity amongst their students uh valuing it uh, talking to them about it allowing them to um, make connections to between school and home. Um, I mean, I, I'm generating a database of activities and ideas and as, along with many other people who've, who've worked on this. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are a lot of things uh, that schools could be doing. Um, longer periods of comprehensive schooling not having early tracking, having comprehensive schooling for eight years instead of four. Right. Well, let's uh, let's just let's just talk about that point for a second. Do you think that the people who are coming to Austria, the people who are coming to these places that have earlier tracking, is it a cultural difference that they're not able to understand why the, the schools are doing this? Or is this a problem that Austria needs specifically to change? The Austrian school system requires a lot of parental input mm. and people who move here may need some time to get to know the school system and they may just assume that they are that everyone goes in the same track right. um, and they yeah they may not be aware of how much other families are are kind of steering their kids into particular schools, so mm -hmm. that might be part of it. But the other the other thing is just around you know teachers' perceptions and beliefs. The decision to track a child is primarily up to their primary school teacher, mm -hmm. and research has shown that um, that decision is not necessarily related to kids learning outcomes and, and possibilities. So, so that decision is informed also by stereotypes and beliefs that may or may not match the child. And so, yeah, kids get tracked based on their primary school grades, which are given to them by one teacher who is subjective so that um i that is that is part of the problem well can i can i ask you because i've never lived in a 
country where this kind of tracking happens this early, how does this affect their actual economic outcomes? You know, there's not so much research on that yet. There is one study that I know of from Germany that that shows that it it has uh, an impact. As I mentioned, the good thing is, is that there, um, the vocational education in this country is is good. And there are a lot of opportunities uh, in vocational jobs. Um, and that's an area where there isn't that much research yet. That That is very surprising to me. You'd think that this was something that would have been organized for the last 10, 20 years. Like this is this is not this is not a new way of organizing an educational system. This is mm. uh, this is I think it's you know it's it's sophisticated is sophisticated economic econometric research that you mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. to do longitudinally and and we haven't just had the data um I think to do that. Are there any case studies of non-Austrian teachers who are in the educational system, who are LX users of uh, German, who might possibly be case studies for you to forward your research? I mean, I think that's a a great way that I would like um, to take my research and there is a low percentage of of student of mm. teachers from migration backgrounds in the school system, and that's one of the things that's changing, and that needs to change. And we need to, and that that's another thing at the policy level that can be do can be done is this explicit promotion of of encouraging uh, students from migration backgrounds into teaching careers. I believe I some statistics i cannot remember where i've seen this but i think the number of teachers from migration backgrounds until recently has been something around 4% mm-hmm. so obviously this is an area where we need to do more work and there are people who are 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 doing that and one of the things i also do with my student teachers is to do language background work with them and language biographies and to alert them to their own multilingualism. And a lot of them, even if they don't come from migration backgrounds, they're a lot more multilingual than they originally think they might be. And, um, and so, yeah, that's one of the things we do in, in that I do in my, in my seminars and my teacher education programs. So moving on from this and uh, moving into the area of how we know each other. We first met when uh, you were invited to be my external examiner for my PhD. How often do you get invited to do this kind of um, work? Not very often. I'm doing one uh, next next month, but that's also partially because five years ago, so I left the UK system. Uh, so I was doing a lot more both internal and external examining when I was in the UK. Well, that maybe that's a really good time to ask you then. How do you approach this role? What is your way of breaking down the uh, reading the 
the thesis and uh, providing questions and things like that. What is your way of being this uh, person who hasn't been part of the PhD up until this point, but now you uh, join in and you have to be the person who possibly decides whether they pass or fail? It's a lot of work. And sure. one of the reasons that I don't do it more often is because I'm quite picky about mm. doing it. And I, I don't just do it for anyone because you, so I have to be really interested in, in the topic and it has to be quite close to my own interests or allow me to learn something that I want to know more about because mm. It really requires a lot of work on the external examiner. And I, it's not uh, something that I want to do shoddily. So, you know, you have to, you have to read the, the whole thesis and you have to, there, there's two types of questions, I think, really. There's those that you, you think you should ask in terms of sort of guarding academic traditions or upholding standards in terms of methods and ethics and you know rigor and things like that so so that's really part part of your job is to really ensure that the work has academic integrity mm. and then there's the sort of questions that you ask out of interest or for clarification or you would like them to explain more about or something that you weren't entirely convinced about or something where you want to ask kind of push somebody on a bit to to make one further jump in in expanding the conclusions that they've they've come to so those are so those are really the two areas I, I can say, as uh, someone who has experienced your rigor, you did that to me, very much so. And I, I appreciated it. You told me to read a book and fix my thesis. And <laughs> I, I did, and I think I did. It was... Yeah, I mean, that, that's you know, what I'm saying. You, you, there's no point in telling something, you know... The one thing you don't want to do is get on board to examine a thesis where it's that there's just some gaping hole in it. And I mean, hopefully people just don't get get to anyway. No, but sometimes yeah. and, and you don't I don't see the role as that I want to get in somebody's way or or necessarily um, make their life difficult. Um, I think you really have to see that people have invested so much time and energy and, and work in things. And I know from my own experience how hard it was, how, and I, I really struggled with the PhD. And somebody told me at the time that, which, which I found really comforting, that it was my last piece of amateur research. So, um, <laughs> So you make a lot of mistakes sure, sure. in or or when you're doing a PhD. <laughs> yeah. And your your path changes uh, a lot while you're doing it, I think. Um for for many many people. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I think you have to keep that in mind as an examiner. And people have, you know, a lot of different reasons for doing a PhD. 
So you have to be supportive, I think, and facilitative and uh, helpful and, and, and not just make people's lives difficult because you have a particular point that you want to make. Well, I'll put it this way. You, you, you didn't make my life difficult. You made me a better writer. You, you made me elucidate my points better, I think, by your feedback. So thank you for that. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I hope, I hope that, you know, that's very nice to hear. Yeah, but, uh, you know, you had a good supervisor and you, and, and, and you turned in a, a very polished piece of work that you had been working on for years. And so hopefully through the process of just going through it one more time, it got just that bit better. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I think that you and my internal uh, examiner also brought out something better. You recommended a couple of extra yeah. sections and you recommended that I, I read a book about how to structure them. And I, I read that book and I produced those and everyone signed off on it and it, and it worked very well. I, looking back on it, I really did enjoy my Viber. I, it, it, it scared the crap out of me before I did it. Of course. Yeah, but it should. You both did a, a very good job of, of shepherding me through uh, that. And I, I thank you for that. Well, I always tell people, you know, to try and enjoy it as much as you can, because there aren't going to be many times in your life where somebody has read your whole thesis and you're well, going to have that opportunity to talk about it. I do remember speaking to my wife about my um, about my thesis and her saying, why is it taking you so long? And I said, it's very, very difficult to write a book that you no, only four people are going to read, and one of them is your mum. <laughs> so yeah, I had my, well, I had my supervisor, I had you, you can, and I had my. And a lot of people family. turn it into books or articles <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, one thing I'll say because I have done some examining in Austria, and once the students turn in their thesis, they have their viva and their defense, and they talk about their, um, but they don't have this opportunity to revise the thesis, and I oh. think that's crazy. I, I because know. I I think I think that's the most important part to have that opportunity to to have people give you feedback on it and have this one more chance to to revise it. I agree. I I completely agree. So um, the paper we've been speaking um, about today is understanding low outcomes in English language education in Austrian middle schools, the role of teachers' beliefs and practices. And we've been speaking with Dr. Elizabeth J. Erling. Thank you very much indeed for your time. And thank I you wish for having you me. The best of luck with your future research. Thank you. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. 
If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.